I'm bumping their fists, right? If I consider you family, I'm hugging the shit out of you, right? So you just better come and get used to it. Welcome to Pros and Comms. In this series, I talk to people about their personal and professional stories, uncovering the different ways and common themes of resonating with an audience. After all, communication is essentially storytelling. I'm Mari Jinai, and today I'll be talking to David McQueen. David is a professional speaker, executive coach, and host of the Leadership Decoded podcast. He's worked with everyone, from students, to global corporations, to high-profile individuals, coaching his audience on communication, leadership, and workplace culture. How does he do that? By telling amazing stories which stick. Now, David, I think we have something in common from an anecdote that I heard you tell. I can't remember where I heard it, so you can uh, tell me if I remember it correctly. But you said that when you were younger, you were geared up to be a doctor, you loved science, and then you saw someone have an injury on a football field and you got a bit peaky and decided medicine wasn't for you. And that's very similar to my experience, except that it wasn't a football field. It was the top of the stairs of a mobile donation clinic. And I ended up at the bottom of the stairs on the donation clinic. So tell me about going from loving science, wanting to do medicine, to where you are now as an executive coach and public speaker. Oh, wow. Okay. So that big 40 plus year journey. Okay. Um so for me, I think it was, it, well, I know it was, there was the, my parents being first generation Caribbeans coming to the UK, believed that education was the only way that you were going to be able to achieve stuff. Keep your head down, work hard and do it. And, and, and there were four career types that were op, op, open to you to be able to achieve on that. They were uh, medicine, law, engineering and accounting, or, or something to do with finance. And I always love creativity. I always love speaking and talking to people. But I kind of like was like, well, you know, if this is what everybody else around me is trying to do or aspire to as well, I couldn't go to my parents and tell them I was going to be an artist or a football or whatever because they would have just laughed at me anyway. I went down the route of trying to go and study science while still keeping a, a kind of foot in the uh, in the space of being a creative or enjoying sports. And then, as I said, when I was sixteen, a friend of mine we were playing football. His leg broke. Saw it fainted and I was like okay I'm not going to be a doctor ever it's never going to work out it's not going to happen went to college and again took up law because I thought okay I'll still be in there somewhere uh absolutely did law for a year hated that I thought okay I'm still going to keep my still going to kind of like keep my head in that space of what they expected to me and I thought what can I do what kind of career can I take on that would still make them a little bit proud and keep them in the corner so they don't give me hassle and I ended up in accounts for eight years did not necessarily want to be an accountant. I just wanted to understand money and how it works in business. Um, and then from there, I went into IT. And with both IT and accounts, what I realized is that I was doing a lot of people work, helping people around their careers. People were listening to me, having really great conversations about building confidence. I thought I should just be doing this for a living rather than all this other stuff. So fortunately enough, I had the commercial experience of both accounting and IT before I branched out onto my own and started doing my executive coaching and other work. But that was the kind of short, swift journey that got me to here. Seeing that spilt blood, recognizing that wasn't for me, 
going through all the kind of like iterations which would have made my parents happier than realizing slightly later on in life it's not about their happiness which is not too bad it's fine but it's about my happiness first and foremost and now you've got or you're involved in so many projects loads yes. of businesses was business something you were interested in at an early age oh yeah i, I set up my first tuck shop um illegally when i was 14 because <laughs> um, i was just i was just fed up with what they had in school and i felt that we could do, do so much better and the local um, sweet shop just said to me, look, Dave, if you go in and sell stuff, you can make, you know, you can make a bit of a margin on here. Um, you can obviously keep the profit and, and just give us back the cost of, you know, the, 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 the goods that were actually sell. So I would go into school and, and I would go, I didn't even realize that at the time, but I, I knew about, I understood about scarcity that you could actually slightly charge a higher premium for stuff if it was illegal and no one else could actually get it in the school. Um, I made four grand in a month and they shut me down. <laughs> so I was like, okay, exactly. Um, you know, in a, in a school, like, you know, you've got hundreds of students. And I wasn't, even when they found out that I had the shop and allowed, gave me permission to do it, um, what it was is we were, I was selling in packages. Like, you know, nobody would just come and buy a chocolate. I'd buy, I'm selling you a chocolate, a packet of crisp and a drink. And, um, and, and I couldn't sell to the upper years, but brothers and sisters from lower years would come and get to me. And there was a thing at the time called moon dust. I think they call it popping candy now. Um, so the one that explodes in your mouth, that little sweet. Um, and in the main shop, they didn't sell that. But in mine, like I would literally would get sold out of that and sherbet all the time. So I didn't do really well for people's teeth in school. But yes, that's where I first started to learn about business. And then it just kept, it just stayed with me. So even though I've had my careers all the way through my life, I've always either run or been part of helping people with businesses. And I absolutely love it. And has there been a specific moment in your life when you realized that you were able to both connect with people, but also influence them as well? Yeah, so I, I actually discovered that quite early on. So although something like public speaking comes quite naturally to me, it started because I realized that there were certain things I could do and I could make people laugh or make people reflect on things. And, um, and for me, that was a that was quite powerful. Um, being able to make kids laugh in school was incredibly powerful. And being able to do it but sometimes without teachers not even knowing it was me. So I, I hardly ever got caught. And I would, you know, make jokes and do stuff. And kids would be absolutely killing themselves laughing and getting kicked out of class or what have you. And they're like, but Dave made me do it. And I'd be down there with my head down in my book pretending to do the actual essay. Um, and I realized there was something powerful about being able to do that. But I also realized on the other side, when I was really good at breaking up fights, so when people got into big fights in school, I'd go in, i go, you know, why do we need to fight? Well, you know, we can have peace here. We can, you know, there can be lovely accords and, you know, and I'd, be, and I'd wind people up and obviously use my humor. And then I realized as I got older, I could do the same thing with adults. Uh, I, there was something about, um, I would say, I learned quite early on, there's something about listening and being able to listen to where people come from. And I think that's such a powerful skill that doesn't get taught enough. But if you really want to be able to influence and communicate people, understand and listen to them first and then take your time to actually talk. And so I discovered it quite young, but then as I, I trained as a counsellor and, and, and I've been doing that, I'm not a qualified coach, but I've learned a lot of coaching techniques. And the biggest thing that I learned is take time to really listen. When you really listen and people know that you're listening to me uh, or to yourselves, that's when I think you can have the most powerful impact because there's a, a sense of, of understanding, there's a sense of trust, 
And there's a sense of reliability that comes out when people believe that they are listened to quite a lot. And that's one of the basis of um, great communication. And another thing is actually being able to tell an idea in a way that's going to resonate, tell a good story. Yes. So what do you think makes a good story, but also a good storyteller? And you've sort of touched on it, mm. but um, can you expand a little bit more? So I think the, the first thing around any good story is, has got to be around connection. So there are loads and loads of stories that people can tell, but how do you connect with your audience so that they are, they, they feel it for themselves and whether it's something that they can relate to in their own experience or having empathy with you as a storyteller and the journey that you're going on, there's definitely got to be that connection. I think the second thing is that it has to be honest. And, and I remember I, I don't do as much um, storytelling coaching as I used to. But when I used to do it as part of doing workshops and working with some big senior teams, I'd always say, don't spend time trying to find a story that's not genuine. Because if it's not genuine, you're going to have a real hard time connecting with people if they find out that you're lying. So make sure it's true. And of course, you know, our memories are not always going to be 100% accurate. So we will tell stories and there may be a little bit of embellishing about how blue the sky was or how vast something is or what have you. But the general story of what you're telling and the general journey you're taking people on has got to be quite powerful. And again, when you're thinking of those stories, there are certain things for me that are important. How you frame that story. Where were you? What time was it? What day was it? Who are the characters who are in that actual story? What did the journey look like? What's the point that you're actually trying to make so people can understand that journey that you're dealing with in the first place? And what's that overarching kind of theme or narrative you have as a result of telling the story? So I think of some amazing examples in business and in life where people have had uh, you know, uh, individuals enthralled by these powerful stories and you go and you look at them and you, you'll see the same thing. There is a, a sense of trust in the storyteller there's a time frame around when this may happen. They start to paint an amazing picture around, uh, you know, words and, and imagery around what happened. There is a real sense that they've connected with you emotionally, and then they take you on that journey of trust. And those things for me are always, always important, whether you're using that for advertising, whether you're using it to communicate a corporate message, whether you're using it in faith groups, whether you're using it to teach children stuff, whatever it is, those key things around storytelling are powerful. You know, if you think about most of the main nursery rhymes we've been told, it they all start with once upon a time. Again, you framed it with a specific time frame. And then you start to think of Goldilocks, or then you start to think of Rapunzel, or whatever it is. But they've started to create these pictures, and then you start to create an image in your head of what that looks like, of the empathy you want to have with the person who you want to win, and the kind of disdain or kind of bad feeling or destruction you want for the person who is going to be the protagonist. But generally speaking, those are the, the formulas that people have when building a really good story. And storytelling for me is something that comes with practice. So you have to practice it. Like any good skill, like any good communication skill that you have, you've got to practice this, see what works, part the things that don't, and definitely build on the ones that do. Is there a certain story of yours that you love telling or had a reaction which you were really proud of or really surprised of? Is there a specific story that sticks in your mind? Ooh, well, I have two. If I can, can I, can I spoil myself Please. for two? So one of them is um, when I used to do, for about 25 years or so, I used to go and speak in schools. I used to give school assemblies and I used to talk around confidence and how students can 
connect with that inner story about what it is that they would do. So I would te- I would tell students the story of how I learned to swim. And so I would give them the backdrop. Um, it's a longer story, so I'll give you the kind of like the quick, quick and easy kind of direction on it. So I would say to individuals that, um, you know, I didn't learn how to swim because um, it wasn't something that my parents necessarily encouraged me to do straight away. And, and there were some stereotypes that I believe when people told me that I went to swim, that, you know, as a black boy, my bones are too heavy. I'd swim, sink to the bottom of the pool. You know, you didn't see any black guys in the Olympics. So what was the point kind of thing? I'm like, right, wow, really? Is that what it was? And then I met my um, missus when I was uh, 19. And we went out and she was in this amazing swimmer. And I really wanted to impress her to show her, like, you know, this is the guy who you want to be. It's the guy who you want to be with. He's got game. He can, you can show up with you wherever you want to go. It would be absolutely cool. Uh, and then one day she says to me, Dave, let's go swimming. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, like, I'm six foot two, so I can get into most pools in the shallow end. And I can walk around and walk at least as close to the deep end as possible. It's not going to be a problem. But anyway, you know, the story I, I tell is that she's there swimming. And I was so impressed with her when she calls me over to where she was. Uh, in Harrow, so in Harrow Leisure Centre, I start making my way towards her. Unbeknownst to me, the deep end of the pool was in the middle, not at the actual end. So I'm walking towards her. My footing kind of like goes. Uh, I fall in the pool and start to panic and drown, and she has to swim over and save me. And so I know when I'm telling this story in school, kids are absolutely like in tears uh, because obviously I'm animated, but they're absolutely crying their eyes out. And I'm like, I'm here, I'm drowning, and I'm screaming, and she's got to come over to me. And she's laughing while she's coming to save me. And so I tell this story, um, and then I fast-forward it a number of years where, um, uh, you know, I, I say that um, I, I had gone on holiday and, and, and had a little bit to drink, and, and I fell in the pool, and it wasn't even deep, and I thought I was drowning, and my wife had to come up, she was my wife then, had to come and save me again. And I was like, right, that's it. I don't care. Whatever happens, I've got to learn how to swim. And, and I say that just after my daughter, my eldest daughter was born, I decided I'm going to go and go swimming. And I saw a guy in the pool who had no legs. So he's an amputee. He's lost his legs. I'm just underneath his knee. And I see him. We're having a conversation. And we actually have a conversation here. And I'm looking at him. And in my mind's eye, I'm kind of like, okay, this guy's got no feet. How's he going to swim? And it's like he's read my mind. And he says to me, you think I can't swim, don't you? And like my voice goes really high, and I was like, "Oh no, I didn't say anything." I, you know, oh, it's, it's okay, it's cool. And um, but we strike up this conversation. He tells me here that he'd been in a car accident; his legs had to get amputated. But his friends encouraged him to go and do swimming, and then he builds it back up. And then he shares with me uh, a little anecdote about swimming or doing whatever you do is going to be in your mind, and once you can convince your mind, your body will follow. And so then I share that story with young people that that's how I learned to swim that day because all I did is I changed the message in my mind. But the story piece from the assumptions that I made at the beginning all the way down to the being taught by an amputee, basically about being confident and getting into the pool, that whole story arc that I take people through, it's both laughter and reflection and, and what can be done at the end. And, and why I repeat that as something being quite powerful is on LinkedIn, Instagram, and even on the high street before the pandemic, there were people who would see me who I'd been in schools and they'd go, oh, I know who you are you're Mr. McQueen, aren't you? And I go, yeah. I remember when you came to my school and you told us about that time you were in the swimming pool and you nearly drowned and your wife had to save you and how it helps you to build confidence. And so for me, I thought, if kids are going to keep on giving me that, or students were going to give me that story for many years, that was a really, really powerful story for, for, for me to remember. And the second one that I always give um, 
specifically more to adults, is just around the confidence around networking. And, and I say that even though I'm a confident person, somebody has to teach me how to network and not to be afraid to go and have conversations and make small talk with people. And then I talk about how I used that. And as a result of um, being confident enough to have go and make small talk, there was a, a friend of mine called Ben Saunders, who was the youngest British solo explorer to the North Pole, who I'd met through a mutual friend. And we had just got speaking and he found out that I was really passionate about um, African development and, and, and what have you. He started talking to me about TED. And he was saying, look, Ted are doing this conference in Africa in 2007, and I think you should go. And I'm like, well, although I've got a real passion for it, can I go there and be a representative if, if I'm not? Um, and he just said, no, just do it anyway. Take a chance. I know Chris who runs Ted. I'll put in a good word for you and see what happens. A few months later, I'm on a plane flying towards Tanzania at TED Global, being this special guest as a fellow at TED for this amazing conference. And I make some really good friends and I talk about just making those connections, some of which I still have to this day. But as a result of that, me stepping outside of my comfort zone, I also got an opportunity because I went to TED to have a conversation with a friend who said to me, Dave, I think you should be on TV. I go for this audition. I end up on Channel 4 because of that network friend. I end up doing a show for Channel 4. As an elder result of that, a friend of mine said, I really like the stuff that you do there. You should do some stuff for business, uh, business online. And I'm like, yeah, one day if the opportunity comes happens, I'll do that. Virgin Media, um, somebody from Virgin Media who I know tells me that they're looking for a presenter for an online show. I end up doing the show and I'm like, do you know, it'd be really good to meet Richard Branson. They said, well, we'll see what we could do. I end up going to Richard Branson's house as part of this whole Virgin Media program. I end up interviewing him and then I end up being a pitch coach for his competition for four years. So I say to individuals, the reason why I share that story is, look, part of it, no, without a shadow of a doubt, was luck. I was in the right place at the right time. But I also say that luck is sometimes what we make. It's about being bold enough to be in those spaces. Because even if I was in the right place, if I didn't have the confidence or the skills to do what I was going to do, it wouldn't have made a difference. But being in those places led to TED, led to me being on Channel 4, led me to me being uh, on Virgin and meeting Richard Branson and end up doing work for him. And it was this cascade of events just because I took that a brave step and, and, and stood out. So those are my two kind of like big stories that people are like, wow, really? And that those two are, those two, as I said, one I use specifically around a more youth audience and the other one I use when I'm talking to adults about being a lot more confident. That's amazing. Both both those stories are amazing, but yeah, wow, meeting Richard Branson. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so you've obviously worked with loads of high profile people, leaders in big corporate organizations. So when you've worked with these people bettering themselves as leaders, communicators, has there been any, not negative traits, but, you know, not, not so favorable traits that you've seen at those higher levels um, or in leaders at those levels? Um, has, has there been any sort of consistency across corporations or is every person you work with different? Everybody's different, but there are a lot of patterns that you will see. So I, I have this statement, and I, and I say it quite blatantly to adults as well as children. I just say adults are just children with mortgages, okay? That's all it is. <laughs> Adult, adults, adults are children with mortgages and higher purchase cars. That's all, that's all it really is. Because you, you realize that, you know, there's, for me, there's no tougher audience than a, than a, children, a student audience. 
Because when I go into schools or colleges or when I used to work in prisons and young offending institutions, I would say to kids, I want you to ask me any question about me that you want. And they would go in like, are you married? When did you use your virginity? Do you watch porn? Uh, how, you know, have you ever been arrested to be taking drugs? And I'm like, bloody hell. Like, I just, I just kind of like just wanted you to give me a simple question. But working with that, what I really loved about that was that, that, that was that true innocence and true ability to learn. And, and what I realized is whenever I went into those spaces and I was so honest about any one of those questions that I was asked and just being really um, um, particular about it, what it did is it built trust. And, and again, to the point that you asked me at the beginning, what I realize is when you listen and when you're really present, it's so much easier to build trust than going into an, a situation and just trying to fix people. And that can be a default in uh, happens that happens too, too often or people expect that for you when you're going in to do something. So as a coach, sometimes people just want me to go in there and fix people. And I go, that's not what I'm about. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk alongside you on your journey and I'm going to point out things to you that probably those who are close to you emotionally or who may be afraid of offending you, they're not going to be able to say. Whereas with me, I'm emotionally detached enough to tell you the truth as I see it. And if you want to be able to improve, I can give you some tools that I've used to be able to do it. But there are certain things, like I've, I know that I've worked with a number of senior executives who have told me, you know, look, um, I'm going to do this, but I'm really busy. And I would just say to them, I'm going to make sure I don't swear on your podcast. I think I said, but you can swear. Okay. And I, I would say that's BS, really. It's honestly, it's BS. Because no, if you're, if you're too busy, you just don't know how to lead properly or you don't have good time management skills. That's what it is. Because what you're doing is you're filling yourself with business, but does that mean that you're productive? People are like, oh, you're, you're a bit feisty and a bit forward, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, but that's the truth. If you're too busy to take an hour or 90 minutes out of your day to understand how you can improve your performance or understand how you can communicate across cultures or with a customer base or understand how you're going to develop your leadership pipeline, then you need to go and reassess your priorities. You need to reassess your diary and have an honest look at yourself and take a check. And people are like, Dave, I can't believe that you kind of go to people and say that. And I'm like, look, we're humans. Wait, the worst that somebody can say to me is I don't want this guy anymore and I don't want to work with him. And, and if you do that to me, I'm like, okay, cool. I've got another six people who are going to work with me anyway. You know, screw you. I'm going to go and find someone else. And, and I think the, the big thing consistently is, is what I call ego checking. That's one of the big things. There are lots of people, you know, you could, you could be a billionaire. All right, you could actually be be a billionaire, but I can guarantee you, there's one area of your life that you haven't got locked down. There's one area of your life that you aren't totally aware of, and maybe at this point in time, I'm the person to be able to come in and challenge you on what that actually looks like and how it actually moves forward. So, for example, last year, 2020, um, uh, after George Floyd died, there were lots of organisations who made these really big bold statements saying, "Look." We're going to be a bit more considerate and we're going to learn how to work and make sure we're a lot more inclusive around black people. That's what the statements they were making. And I was like, okay, before you go and make sign checks with your mouth that your body can't cash, think very, very carefully about what kind of promises or statements you're making. And everybody, black squares, all this kind of stuff. And I said, you've got to be really mindful. I said, because first and foremost, when you make that statement, there are going to be other underrepresented minorities from different backgrounds who will feel excluded because of the nature of that um, statement, you're saying, right, you know, we're just going to focus on black people. And which, for me, there's no problem. But then how do you couch that um, whole conversation to make sure that other minorities or other ethnic groups don't feel excluded, but they also feel 
that rather than it being an, an, an uh, either or, it's a both and, all the our needs can be served as well. And going in and having work with organizations and saying to them, you need to really check this. And, and right now, the reason I am here is because you, for years, you've been denying that race and ethnicity is an issue in your organization. But I'm going to come in and not beat you up. I don't do, I don't do shame, blame, and guilt. I don't, you know, the only time I want uh, guilt is when I'm going for a mortgage or an overdraft. That's the only time you need to be guilty around me. Otherwise, than that, keep your shame, blame, and guilt. Um, I'm saying, how can you do this, but do it with the sense that you recognize the decisions, the thinking, the questioning, the problem solving that you have when tackling race is something that you will apply to any other area of your business when put under pressure. And how do you do that? And so that common theme that I've had to ch ch um, tackle with individuals is just getting people's egos in check. And there are some people who don't want to change. They don't think it's relevant to anything. And I then have to draw back to your point I was making earlier. I have to draw back on my commercial experience to say, well, look, if you don't see this from a moral point, if you don't understand that your customer base comes from a very diverse background, if you don't understand that in all those universities you're going into to get um, African, Caribbean, South Asian, East Asian, Latinx, or whoever to join your organization, and you do not understand what that person brings to the table, you're going to have a problem. And I will tell you now, no matter what poster you put out, that if you don't get that right, it's going to be problematic for you. And there were people who, you know, who would really kind of like, oh my God, this is, you're really rocking the boat. I'm like, I will tip the boat over, right? I will tip it over. I will give you a life jacket, but I will tip the boat over if it means to get the message home. And, and part of that direct nature has allowed me to get some really good, strong relationships with clients because people want that. They don't just want, they, you know, there are some who just want to be, have a little pat on the back, but the longstanding relationships that I have with the individuals are going, right, I know you're going to challenge me, David, and I know you're going to do it with a good intent, being direct, but with a sense of empathy. And that, for me, is what makes, makes a difference. And if there's no chemistry between myself and the person who's there, if there's all resistance and there's a whole load of ego, I'll just go, I'm not the person for you. Thank you very much and goodbye. But yeah, that's the kind of, I know, in a roundabout way, those are the kind of common themes that I see uh, when I work um, with organizations. And again, as I said, not everybody has exactly the same thing, but those are the kind of, especially around that ego and resistance and, 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 and procrastination, those tend to be the common things I see. So to flip that and personalize it, what do you think makes a good leader? Um, for me, a good leader is evidenced by, the, by two things. The first one is being able to get the results that you said you were going to get. So building a vision, building a strategy and saying, this is where we're going. And then you evidence that you're going to do that. You move heaven and earth and you find ways of being able to do that. And even if you don't get to that space, because there may be external forces which will stop you from being able to get there, going with the intention and managing the expectations that that's what you're going to do, and people are on board to do it, for me, that is number one. And, and not doing that by coercion, not making people feel bad, but being able to effectively communicate that to individuals that that's where you're going. That's the first one for me. The second one is evidenced by the people that you lead. If you want to know how good a leader you are, ask the people who you lead. That is it for me. All the management theories and leadership models and traits and all the rest of it, that means nothing unless you can take a group of those individuals who will, really, who will basically fight tooth and nail because they've believed in your vision, they've believed in your honesty, they've believed in your ethics, 
they believe that you will take them through to that sense of resilience, they, your flexibility, and, and, and they will definitely go on that journey with you. So if I ask them as a collective, rather, you know, there's obviously going to be somebody who's going to be, who thinks that they can do it better. But if I ask individuals as a collective under your leadership, how they see your leadership, and the reflection that comes back to me, that for me is a powerful, powerful measure beyond any personal opinion of how good you are as a leader. I was nodding furiously through that because I have worked under good leaders, but I've also worked under bad leaders. Yeah. So if you're working under a leader who isn't so great, yes. what things can you do to try and make the situation better? So I think there are, there are a, com- a com- combination. I think the first one is that you've got to read the room. And when I say that, I think you've got to understand the politics of, of an organization. So I'll give you a quick example or give you a quick framework if I can. When I um, started to do a lot of the, the programs that I was talking about in 2020 and talking about race and ethnicity and how leaders can build sustainable cultures, one of the things I said is that you have to understand that for a lot of people who come from, um, I'm going to call them immigrant parents who came here to the UK for a better life, we were told to work hard, right? I'm sure you can understand this. You work hard, keep your head down, get the exams. You come home with a 98 out of 100 and your parents ask you what happened to the 2%. Or, you know, you, 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 go, you go in and, 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 and you've got nine GCSEs and your cousin's got 10. And then your parents ask you, why didn't you do the extra one or what have you? So we always had that pressure uh, of comparison and you know I in reflection I don't think our parents were malicious in any way I just think it was just their way of trying to survive and really trying to get us to be really good so you go into the workplace now having absolutely smashed out the park your GCSEs your A-levels your degree and then you go into a workplace and you keep your head down and you work hard but then what you realize is that individuals who went to private schools or came from a larger majority um, populations what they were taught as well when they went to private schools or when they were part of a network or when they were used to seeing people around them that looked like them, they understood office politics. They understood how to navigate those spaces. They understood what it was like to have a personal advisory team, so to have coaches, to have mentors, to have sponsors. And they also understood what it was like to work smart. So whereas many of us, we just worked hard. That was it. We were just going, you know, we, you know, we, everybody leaves the office at six and we're there till bloody seven o'clock because we want to give the impression that, you know, we're working hard. Well, well, those who leave at six, they don't give a monkeys because they've gone, you know, but we're there till, till seven. And what I realized is part of being able to manage that space is, is, and to your, to your question is understanding that we work hard, understand how to work smart understand who the people are we need around us and then understand that office politic because when we do we can start to challenge individuals who are above us we can lead up we can lead down or we can lead sideways and we understand the impact of influence so we start to explain to people the reason why i'm doing this is because x and it helps with our overall output or our overall performance it also means that if somebody comes and tells us to do something and we have a better way of doing it we can have enough confidence or agency or, or self-determination in our voice to go, well, the reason why I'm doing it this way is because I want to challenge you on this point and say that this is more a more efficient way of doing that. Now, most people are absolutely terrified of that. And when I talk about people are terrified about challenging managers or leaders because they think it could affect their job or their performance appraisal. But again, coming back to the point I made before, if you learn and take time to read the room, if you learn and take time to learn from others who have gone before you, who can educate you on how you frame those questions 
or how you frame those responses, it's a powerful position that you put yourself in to lead up and down and sideways. And you start to think about how do I make this not by being a pain in the arse or not by being coercive, but understanding how do I influence people to understand the actual direction that I'm going into. And for me, that journey, and that's what I love doing in group or individual coaching, getting people to understand what those questions look like, who, what, why, where, and when, and the evidence that backs it all up in the position you take, that stuff is incredibly powerful. Definitely. Definitely. I reckon I could probably do with some of those lessons. (laughs) (laughs) So you have talked about, and we've talked about working with high-profile figures, organizations as a speaker, but also being the only person of color in a room. So through your career, have you experienced unfair treatment because of what you look like? In the workplace, no. In the workplace, no. And and I think I've the reason why that's happened to me is I I'm very clear about what my boundaries are. So if anybody has kind of made an inappropriate joke, and not just to me, but if it's affected other people, be it around their sexual orientation, their ability, their religion, their gender, I'm, I'm not afraid to check them and ask them, you know, what, what does that actually mean? What do you mean when you say that? When you say that you, you, you made a joke about a woman or if you've made a joke about black or Asian people, if you made, what, what, does, what does that mean? Um, let me explore that. I'm not going to accuse you straight up, but let me explore exactly what I mean. I loved asking questions as a kid, so it just used to be with me for my whole life. What does that actually mean? And, and even when there have been situations where people have just tried to be a bit belligerent or aggressive, I've just said, look, um, and, and of course, look, I'm a six foot two black guy. Not many people are going to mess around with me when I stand up anyway, right? But the, the presence of being able to go, right, these are my boundaries and this is what it is and this is not acceptable. I remember uh, in one of my first jobs, I actually it was about the third job I had working for a property company and the CEO started shouting at me in a meeting and I went okay I'm out he said what I said I'm out I said when you're ready to talk to me as a human call me and I'm happy to go picked up my stuff and walked out the meeting all the directors around the table and other people were looking like and bear in mind and and I'll say this now right bear in mind that was a time when if somebody sat you, you could just walk into a job. You just go to read down the road and they go, all right, okay, I'll give you another job somewhere else. But for me, he had violated my values and my boundaries. And, and I don't care how much money he had. There's no way I was going to stay in an office where someone was shouting at me and bullying me. And I remember that day, like the whole office atmosphere was charged because David had walked out of the office with the CEO shouting and he just said, I'm not going to go and sit down. My boss, when I went into his room at the time, he went like he called me in the office and his face was ashen, like all the blood had drained. He goes, Can you tell me what happened? I heard you w- walked out of the room. I said, Yeah. I said, No one shouts. My dad doesn't shout at me to get a point across. And my dad is the one male in this world that I respect more than anybody else. If he doesn't do it, you ain't paying me enough to sit down here and shout at me and treat me in that way. And I remember it kind of like it really um, kicked off. And then I was called into the room and he said, I see you walked out. And I said, Okay, look, let me just make it clear. Just before we get into any roundabout way, I love what you do. You built an amazing large company, and and I'm thankful. Uh, and 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 by the way, I always say thankful, not grateful. Just I'm just dropping that in there. Right? I'm not grateful to get my stuff. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm so grateful to be. I'm thankful because I know I had the talent and the skill, and we were able to have a match. So I'm thankful for the opportunity, but I don't do grateful because grateful just allows you people to think that they can come in and take too much advantage. 
So I go in and I challenge him around this. And I just said, look, you know, I'm just making it really clear. You don't pay me enough. And even if you did pay me, I wouldn't sit in here and, and tolerate it. I said, it may not necessarily be appropriate for me to have walked out the room. I said that had I not walked out the room at that point in time, I would have cursed you and I probably lost my job. And I would have given you what for. And and so he, interestingly, after that, he made an apology to his board of directors about what had happened and what, you know. And some of them, they love to take because they were getting paid, you know, good six figures. They can shout at them all day long. They just, just shout at me and I'm going about my business. But for me, that sense of identity always allowed me to go into spaces where um, I know what my boundaries are, I know what my values are, and I know what my behaviors are. And if at any point in time you step over them, I'm going to challenge you on them. And I don't care who you are. I've never been, and I don't know what it is, and, and maybe maybe this has always freaked my parents out, but I've never been a respect of a person just because you have a title. You know, um, and, and, it, and even within a family setting, you know, I've got older uncles, and I'm like, I remember saying to one of my uncles who was rude to my mum, I just said, you're disrespectful. And he said, who are you? I said, let me give you my full name. And I gave him my full government name, right? <laughs> I told him my full government name. And then I said, and you're disrespecting the woman in this world who I love the most. And that is not acceptable language. So either you apologize and whatever you need. You just said, do you know, I'm your uncle. You can't talk to me like that. I said, I am talking to you like that. And I said, under, under no circumstances would I allow you or tolerate to speak to my mom like that. And I said, and, and I said, and you know, the, for me, the issue is closed. I'm not discussing it with you here. Oh, you're rude, and I'm, I, said, I, I actually really don't care. And again, you know, I was a lot. I grew quite tall quite early, so again, height always was a good advantage for me. But to flip it back out into what you're saying, having travelled around the world and spoken on basically nearly every continent, I'm very, very clear to the organisers that I work with what language I'm used to, what boundaries I'm used to, and and if somebody oversteps that boundary, I will check you. And in some places, it is fascinating, and I can tell you that it's fascinating going to Eastern Europe, being to Australia, being to South America, and going into specific rooms where I am the only black man in that room. I am the only person of color. There are internal conversations that I have to have in my head, like, okay, what are these people kind of thinking here? And then I just go, do you know what? Screw it. I am who I am. This is what I bring to the table. This is, I, you know, uh, and I deserve to be here. Because somebody's invited me here based on my skills, based on my qualifications, based on my experience, so I deserve to be here. It's not about me second-guessing whether I should be here or not. It's about me standing up, delivering, and then if anybody oversteps the boundaries and tries to do something, I will correct you, definitely. So that's my kind of experience. I've never really had to deal with that at all. So what would you say to institutions, organisations, whatever it is, who want to promote diversity and you know fight against the prejudice but not just do the whole oh have an equality and diversity and inclusion one training day like what are the actual things that large organizations can do to promote inclusivity so the toughest part for me and especially when I'm working with the really global large corporations it's just having a look at what's really important in that organization in the first place. What do those values actually mean in practice when you do have a history of people who have been either, either sacked or they're signing NDAs or something else because they have had experienced sexual harassment or racial harassment or, 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 or have had prejudice because around their orientation? 
And I say to those organizations, let's have a really, really honest conversation about that. Pull out the data that's come before. Let's see what's happened. Don't hide that stuff. You know, I'm more than happy to sit down here and sign an agreement with you that when we look at this stuff, that it won't go out into the public and I'm not going to expose you for it. But let's look at that and let's see what's honest. And then let's start to really dig deep into what those, um, uh, what those, how those issues started and what you would do right now in order to mitigate any chance of that actually happening again. What do you need to put in place? Let's look at procedures. Let's look at policy. Um, let's look at some of the incidents that have happened and then go, okay, as leaders, what kind of values or narrative or messages that you want, do you want to have? And so I use, uh, like, I, I love systemic design where you start to look at the whole ecosystem. So I have these things like when, you know, when you're working, um, how does your behavior, your language, the way that you carry yourself affect your customers? Um, how does it affect your culture? So internally or the staff and individuals you're working with. And then how does it affect that external community, be it stakeholders, the places you work, your supply chain, all the rest of it? How do those behaviors affect it across the board? So it's just not in one specific spot, but how does the ethos of your larger organization work as a whole? And then I say, once we start to do that, then bit by bit, you keep reiterating, you over-communicate it, you keep on saying it time and time and time again. But you also make sure when you do that, that your staff understand the why. And that's the big thing. All right, you can do the what and the how. Like I don't do unconscious bias training, for example. I think it's a load of tr tosh. Right? I don't do it. I absolutely think it's a load of tosh. I think it's some real fo false thing that was created by organizations to throw in there, make people feel guilty for a few hours after doing an online test, and then what happens next? Nothing. I actually think a lot of the biases that we have are actually conscious. I think they are ingrained with us, and we need to kind of like revisit them and understand why we are behaving in that way. Sometimes the way we are brought up, the cultures we are in, and be honest about that and go, look, do you know what? When I show up at work, I need to be able to be congruent with what's actually happening, even though I've had this kind of narrative going on in the background. And creating the space for that to happen, creating the space for those honest um, reviews of what have happened, and then an honest appraisal of how the actual existing culture and company works right now. And then being able to go, right, this is what we want it to be in the future. For me, that's when you start to work and you, you really start to unpick and unpeel a lot of stuff and all the messaging and the different narratives and the ways of being able to commun communicate that internally and externally, that's how you do it. Rather than all these half-day flipping anti-bias, bloody, you know, whatever workshops, that stuff, you know, it's it, it, it gets rid of the, the pain or the bad feeling for a day, but it doesn't become part of your DNA. And for me, that whole looking at it and then really experimenting, getting sometimes getting things wrong as well and being okay with that. Um, but dealing with that and then building and, and constantly iterating as you would do with the product, as you would do with your marketing, as you would do with your financial systems, you do the same thing with your culture, with your diversity, um, equity and inclusion, and, and you review it, you see what impact it has, but you know it has got to be a journey. It's just not a one-off. And that's the stuff I love doing. Definitely. I watched your Dream Nation speech that you did uh, a while back, a while ago now. And in that, you said that you, or one, has to decide what success looks like, and no one else can define it. So what does success look like to you? So for me, success, first, it comes in three waves. So for me, my personal success is around my ability to be as congruent as I am. So I, what you see is what you get. And I am very 
conscious of coming from a very traditional conservative Caribbean household where you're supposed to hold certain things back. You don't swear, you don't speak your mind, you're not direct. I've had to unlearn and relearn for myself how I wanted to be able to communicate. And, and being able to be that authentic person who, who can be profane, who can swear, but understand it's contextual and it's a pattern interrupt rather than just trying to jar or just trying to shock people. I do it as an intentional part of my speech. Um, and I only started, you know, one-to-one I would do that normally, but I would only start to do some of that online when I started to move away from education because I realized the impact it would have if a kid sees me effing and blinding all over the night. Oh, Mr. McQueen got there and he said that and then they can copy it. Um, and so for me, that success being congruent with myself was number number one. The second one, for, and, and obviously all the things that come with it, with my health, my well-being, and looking after myself, that's that's number one. The second one for me is my family. Again, um, you know, I'm married. I've been married now for 26 years now. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, 20, yeah, 26 years. Crikey. 26 years with my wife of 33. Um, and, you know, we've got two daughters. And, and my dad last year had COVID. For 11 weeks, he was in hospital, came out. And it really, again, really just reiterated to me how powerful family is. And when I say family, I'm not just talking about blood. I'm talking about my my friends as well and my dear friends. And they're, they're a big part of, of, of who um, um, uh, they got. Like, shout out to my good friend, Shazir, who actually introduced me to you as well. It's become a really good... Um, you know, part of, of part of my life. And, you know, we speak probably nearly every week online or, or on the phone. And, and, and But that's part of my success, having individuals like that around me who will challenge me, who will celebrate me, who will allow me into their life so we can talk about things that are really open and honest. Those things are really important. And then after that, anything that comes after that, you know, business, career, um, having a bit of money in the bank, all those things are a result of me having those two, first two things in place, me having congruence around myself and me having a sense of real um, stability and love and caring and, and support from my family. And then all the other things that, will, that other people will see as external success, they come as a result. So that's success for me. Absolutely. I think that's similar to what I hold dear as well. I think money isn't a massive motivator for me it's obviously you've got to have some to live but um yeah I think there's people who are really driven by money and people who are driven by other things as well so yeah family is definitely one for me definitely good good so you mentioned the pandemic we're sort of coming out of it hopefully fingers crossed (laughs) slowly so how has the pandemic affected you um so Personally, I've I've actually just loved being at home. <laughs> I've, I've actually really loved it. And, and again, let me let me own my privilege here. I live in a a little village not far from Watford, um, and I'm five minutes in any direction from my house. I could be in a field, walking in a small forest and what have you. So I have that openness to be able to just get out of my house and just go and walk. I've got a nice sized garden, you know, decent sized house. So I, we weren't falling over individuals so having that it was okay for me and then because of my work I could jump on zoom or teams or whatever and I can conduct a lot of my coaching and my speaking that way um and you know if I'm honest with you last year was my best year financially as well because there was a lot of demand for the work that I do and in some instances I had to turn some work away 
uh, on, on the on the downside, as I said just earlier, my dad got COVID at the beginning like, of this, and so he was hospitalised, and that was really touch and go. I, you know, I felt at one point that we were going to lose him. You know, when he came out of the hospital, we actually got um, information that said that he was very close to actually dying twice. Um, and and it really, as I said, it really made me appreciate the small time we have on Earth with those who are people who are around us. And so, a lot of things have happened as a result of that. Uh, you know, I've realized that there were great opportunities to, to do better communication and to really hone my own craft and to learn as much as I taught, but also to be very, very appreciative of the things that I have, um, my family um, and my friends. Um, and, you know, again, going back to the point I made about with family, that those individuals that I consider in my small bubble, I'm like, I look, I know COVID's here, but when you come to my house, or if I see you somewhere, I'm hugging you. I'm bumping no fist. Right. If I consider you family, I'm hugging the shit out of you. Right. So you just better come and get used to it. And that has made me really appreciate how much hugs and that close contact with people make a massive difference. So, you know, although we're, I, although that's, I mean, Lord knows what happens now that it's a bit open and we've got very different variants kind of like going around the system or what have you. But I, I feel a lot more confident now that we have a vaccine. I feel a lot more confident now that organizations are doing a lot more to be careful about how we manage ourselves. And I'm not taking public transport for a good while. I'm just driving. I don't care how much it costs. I'm just getting in my car and I'm going somewhere to meet people. But generally speaking, I'm quite optimistic. And I think, you know, it'll probably, it'll probably take us, about, I reckon it's about until next year where we really hit um, a new way of living, as it were. Because I don't think we're going to go back to what we had because that was just bizarre and insane. But I do believe next year we'll probably go back to a new way of living. And in the meantime, I'm just, you know, enjoying that journey on the way there. Mm. Yeah, 2020 was difficult for me because I'm a big hugger. Yeah. So it's obviously been a tough year, over a year, for people who have lost confidence, lost motivation. Some people have even lost their jobs. So have you got any key motivators for those people as we come out of hopefully the last lockdown. Yeah. So I think a, a lot of it is around just taking that moment to reflect on some of the things that have changed and, and starting to write, write a story of what you'd like it to look like going forward. And, and so what does that mean by writing a story? I think it's you, you're setting goals and you're setting a framework for things you want to do. So for example, there were lots of uh, friends I know who worked in hospitality services and, and um, things like photographers and hairdressers and what have you, whose you know lifestyle was totally decimated by the, the severity of the lockdown. And one of the things I said to them is I said, start to look at some of your stuff to see it can be, if it can be digitized. See if you can do that stuff online, taking your knowledge, teaching courses, you know, doing programs and what have you. And and quite a few have taken that up and really, I, I had a photo shoot here with my, at home with my wife um, yesterday and the photographer who came along, he's pivoted his business in such a way that he's doing a lot more stuff now and quite a lot of it is digital. Um, but, I, but I'm also aware that not everybody is able to do that. So I say to individuals, what are the things that you can do? What are the things that you may need to do in order to be able to reskill up or start to think about um, other things that you can uh, do that will involve your skill set? But I also really encourage individuals to surround themselves with people who will pick up the phone, send a text, jump on Zoom or what have you to just check in once a week. How are you doing? How was your week? How are you keeping? No, don't give me the little bullshit that you're okay. Okay, doesn't wash with me. How are you really doing? 
and then being really present to see exactly how they can help. And using those individuals as soundboards and yourself being a soundboard when um, individuals want to be able to come and share their ideas and thoughts with you. Uh, and so for me, a lot of that confidence is not about just doing it on your own, but being able to have a support network around you that can help you with your business, that can help you with your personal stuff, that can help you with your career, and consistently making sure that we lean more on individuals in that network and stop trying to think that we have to do it all on our own like some modern-day hero. Absolutely. That is brilliant advice. So, David, you had an amazing career as we've just gone through really quickly. So throughout all of this, what is the most valuable thing that you've learned? The most valuable thing I've learned is to, firstly, is self-love and and to, to really have an appreciation of who you are as an individual and what you bring to the world. Uh, and a lot of the work that I've done and that has driven me into this space is because people don't have a sense of that. We're always looking for the extrinsic rewards and we want people to celebrate us. And and first and foremost, we need to celebrate ourselves. What do we bring to the world? What's What are we really grateful for? How do we add benefit to people around us? And for me, that sense of self-love then allows you to be quite open-hearted and be vulnerable because, you know, sometimes things are going to happen that are going to be outside of your control. And it may be a bit, you know, may throw you a bit and give you a little bit of a wobble or in some extreme cases, it might cause some trauma that you need to have some challenges and coaching and guidance around. But that shouldn't stop you from being an open-hearted person that loves self first and foremost. And then you set boundaries and you set um, a, a line as to how you can love other people as well. And that love bit, even when I go and I know I do this stuff in corporate and people are like, this guy's coming in to talk to us about love. And I go, no, because it's really important. That's what connects us. That's what a lot of us are missing in this mad time. We're missing that love. We're missing that hugs. You know, if I see you, I'll tell you now, if I see you down the street, I'm running towards you and I'm picking you up. We're going to go and have a hug and then I'll apologize afterwards. All right? Well, I won't. I'd ask permission first, I'll be honest. But I would hug you. All right, well, come in. Can I have a hug? Because I just know that that's what connects us so well. And, and, and having a sense of that, Self-love allows me then to love my wife. It allows me to love my daughters. It allows me to love my friends. It allows me to love the work that I do. And it allows me to teach other people to have a sense of self-love and self-worth. And, and, and those things for me are really important. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I turned 52 in April. And I was sitting down and writing down. I said, you know, look, I'm not being morbid or anything now. But, you know, if for some unfortunate reason I had to leave this planet now, I can look back and say that, I really, really enjoyed my life. I'm hoping that I have a lot more years in the tank. Don't get me wrong. Do you know what I mean? But I really, really enjoyed it. And and one of the biggest learnings was is just that sense of self-love, allowing myself to be happy, allowing myself to be able to celebrate things in the moment without trying to rush into the future, allowing myself to see people around me just love themselves for who they are. That stuff is incredibly powerful. And it will always drive me. If I, as I said, I said to my wife, look, if it's just me and you in a tent somewhere, I'd still be happy. I'll be there. And she's like, no, we're not living in a tent, so don't bring those ideas to me, right? But it's it's having that sense of self-love that really drives it. That's what's important to me, definitely. What a brilliant note to end on. David, thank you so much for joining me. It's been amazing, and I want to talk to you for like another hour at least, but uh, we should probably wrap up now but yeah thank you so much thank you thank you and I hope we do get to talk again at some point definitely whether it's on the podcast or on the call you got my number you got my email let's do that if we need to continue okay or in the street and I'm going to give you a massive hug yes definitely <laughs> definitely thank you
Thank you. So one more thing before we go. Uh, what one thing would you like to leave listeners with? Ooh. Oh, wow. Also, yeah, the one thing I'd love you to do is get into the habit of practicing gratitude. Yeah. So whether that's telling people thank you in the moment or whether it's going in a journal and thinking about your day and what you've been able to achieve or, or on a Friday getting together with people and celebrating your wins for the week, practice gratitude. That is one of the biggest things that have made a massive difference in my life. Definitely practice gratitude. So I really encourage your listeners to do that. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Communication is essentially storytelling. If you can tell a good story, you can make a message stick in people's minds for years. Ideal when you're trying to promote a brand, raise awareness of a cause, or teach the lesson of confidence as a mindset to a young audience through the story of how you were taught to swim by an amputee. David had some great tips for telling good stories, like finding the connection to your audience so they can relate to or have empathy with you, and telling something which is genuine so your audience trusts you, with a bit of embellishment here and there, of course. I was also fascinated by his stance on equality, diversity and inclusivity, and the fact that he thinks unconscious bias training is a load of tosh. Science is global, science is collaborative, but in the life science sector are we owning the biases and prejudices that individuals and organisations inherently have, instead of diminishing our responsibility by calling them unconscious. Tackling these issues takes great leadership, from leaders who aren't afraid to be ego-checked, who aren't afraid to be challenged, and who can inspire a group of individuals to believe in their vision and share the arduous journey to achieve it. The amazing innovations in our sector are spawning new dynamic companies every day, and with great leaders at the helm, they'll benefit both society and their workforce. Think you're a good leader? Only your team will really be able to answer that question. If you liked this conversation, let me know. You can find more information about this episode by heading to the Malby website. Or you can see the actual conversation on our Pros and Comms YouTube channel. Just search for Pros and Comms and find our orange bubble. We're also on Instagram at Pros and Comms Podcast, so come and say hi. Or use the hashtag Pros and Comms on social media to carry on the conversation. Make sure you follow Pros and Comms on your favourite podcast platform to keep up to date with new episodes. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, share us with your pals. <laughs>